Growing up in Alabama, Jessica Nicole was part of one of the only biracial families that she knew of. She'd walk down the street with her parents, with her white mom and her black dad, and people would stare. They'd stare so much that even now when people stare too long at her in public, which when you're an actress on shows like Scandal and Fringe, that can happen for any number of reasons. Even so, when people stare, she still worries that it's because someone maybe hasn't seen someone who looks like her before. And that makes you feel like you don't belong. It makes you feel unwelcome. That is what we're talking about today on LGBTQ&A with Jessica Nicole. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this feeling of not belonging often also underscores the experience of so many queer actors in Hollywood. So we talk all about that, about how Jessica's queerness affects her casting, how being biracial affects her casting, and of course, the combination of both. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, here's Jessica. I feel like we make such a big deal about public figures coming out and speculating about sexualities. And I bring that up because you've actually never been in the closet as an actor, right? Correct. That is pretty correct. But I really had not been grappling with it. It was kind of like this big epiphany. I had filmed this uh, movie called Take the Lead. It's a dance movie with Antonio Banderas. (laughs) We filmed it in Toronto. And I was up there and I met this girl in a clothing store and I was like, what are these feelings? I had never consciously thought about it in that way before. I had known that I might have a special kind of idea of girls in a way that maybe other girls didn't. But I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was already a biracial girl of color. I didn't think there was enough space for me to question anything else about my existence. So I was like, kind of just trying to make it through as one of the few people of color where I grew up. And so after I like left Birmingham and I had moved to New York City and then I booked this movie and I feel like it was the first time I started to have space to kind of say, hey, guess what? Let's revisit some things that might have come up in like middle school or high school. So anyway, long story short, I meet this girl. We never dated or anything. I just thought she was cute. And I was like, well, that's kind of a sign right there. And so I came back to to New York and I enlisted a friend of mine to help me find some queer girls on MySpace. (laughs) I was like kind of trying to use it as a dating site before there were like big online dating sites. And yeah, I saw this girl on MySpace and I wrote to her and I was like, you seem pretty cool. Do you want to go out? I was pretty forward. Like That's really forward. It's way more forward than I am in like my regular life. But there was something that I think just compelled me to be like, let's just do this. Like, let's not have any more guesses or wonder about it. So anyway, I dated this girl for a very short period of time. I didn't even really like her, but I didn't need to. I was like, oh no, this is this is where it's at. The fact that I'm so into her, even though I'm not into her, was like a really big deal for me. And and so then my career kind of picked up a little bit after Take the Lead. So yeah, I was out, but nobody, nobody knew. Because, you know, we didn't have Twitter. I'm 
an older woman. Okay. We didn't have Twitter back in that time. We didn't have like your my our my nobody looked on MySpace. You know, you didn't have a, a social media following the way that you do now. So I was out, but nobody nobody knew. And it doesn't come up in many interviews. And it it never ever came up. So when I got cast in Fringe, I remember in Toronto again, and we're you know all kind of like sitting around, and I mentioned my partner, and I could see like several eyebrows quietly raise up because they were like a partner. Well, that's coded language. It's coded language to them, not to me. And then I was like, oh, I guess I guess you didn't know that. I didn't even think about it as a thing that anybody needed to know. Or you didn't even realize that you were like, quote unquote, outing yourself. Yeah, like I, I really didn't because I had kind of surrounded myself by, you know, people who were in the community, queer themselves or new queer people. Like it wasn't, to me, coming out was to my parents. That was it. No, Nobody else really counted. And I had done that. So I didn't realize that constantly, you know, mentioning Claire or telling people about my partner who's the same sex as I was, was going to be a forever coming out every single job that I have had <laughs> since then. Even now. Yes. It feels like like you, you see their faces because everybody assumes, everybody assumes that I'm heterosexual. And again, I don't make a big deal out of it because I'm like, this is my life. I've been with her. We're celebrating our 12-year anniversary this June. So we've been together for a long time. She's like my right hand. You know what I mean? Like she's just, she's my person. But it is, it is a shock to so many people <laughs> across the board when I come out. So now I'm a little bit more conscious of it when I say Claire and I'm very deliberate and I'm like looking them in the eyes, my partner, Claire. Do you find that you are the only one who's queer on set? All the time. Really? All the time, except from the hair and makeup department. There tend to be like more queer people in that area, mostly men. And sometimes... I found out I am not the only queer person on set. And then I have a shock because I'm also like, I'm used to everybody that I know being out. And so there have been a couple of projects where I worked on and then I kind of found out by the wayside that somebody was queer. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I did the assuming thing. I had no idea. Just when people aren't um, vocally out, I just yeah. don't make uh, – I, I do make an assumption. And so that's always exciting to me. I'm like, look at us. We're all over the place. You know, because I don't think that we all have to be out. Like I totally respect people who are taking their time or or are out – but aren't out to like the public, which I think is still out. Like you can be out to your friends and family, the people that are close to you. And I don't think that you have to have a big old announcement. And I don't think that's necessary, but it's still really exciting when I kind of cross paths with people. Of course. I mean, we work in Hollywood and it's like quote unquote liberal media. You would just assume that behind the scenes it's crawling with queer people. Not in my experience. And, you know, also very different here than in New York. I moved to New York to do musical theater and I wanted to be on Broadway. And there's queer people like all over the theater scene in, in New York, which is great. And here it's definitely a little bit more undercover, um, particularly I find with women in Hollywood in this in the television and film industry. Oh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's very hard to discuss whether or not it affects your casting because you'll, you'll you never know either way. This has been such a big conversation that I've been having lately because there have been several times in the past couple of years where I am very sure that I think that my queerness has affected my casting like since my career began and since people knew. But people are not um, 
as open to that possibility, which is really interesting. So I think it's so bizarre because nobody's going to argue that being a woman affects your casting, that being a person of color affects your casting. So if you know that you're working in a misogynist, racist industry, it doesn't make sense that it wouldn't also be homophobic. And yet when I say, oh, yeah, you know, this happened, I was up for it. There were these other queer actors that were up for it. And then they ultimately cast a straight person. You know, I think that my queerness affected it. And they'll be like, but do you know for sure? And it's like nobody has ever told me for sure that my skin color or my gender has affected my casting. It's kind of one of those things that you learn from experience because of the way that I walk through the world and the interactions that I have and picking up on certain cues that people give me where I can see like discomfort or something. So yeah, I definitely think it's mostly when um, I know that they're looking, that they're interested in casting a queer actor and they go for a straight actor. And it's usually a queer character, queer character. They're looking at queer actors and then a straight actor will get it. That has happened so many times. And it has it has become like a joke in my household. Like, well, you know, so-and-so is going to get it. If I'm up for it, then such-and-such is going to get it. Because I think that that makes the powers that be, in air quotes, more comfortable. Because they feel like they're already going out on a limb to have a queer character. So they're like, oh, if we hire a queer act, that's that's too much. That's too much. We still want the guys to like her. Oh, is it softening it in their mind? I I think so. And I think it's I think it's BS. Like, I don't right. think that that's what audiences want to see or care, care about. I actually th- think that it's, I, or I assumed that it would be easier for execs to think that they could sexualize a queer woman more than an audience could sexualize a queer man. Man, um, you know, in terms of like men being attracted to women. But I think that I, I'd see a man being attracted to a queer woman more than a woman being attracted to a gay man. Sure. Also consider my skin color and the fact that I'm brown. And I think that there is this pervasive idea that the black community is like 100% all the way through homophobic and that they won't stand for anything else. I also don't think that that's true. But a lot of the times when I have been up for these roles, they cast a black straight actor instead of a black queer actor that's fascinating i know you also though don't necessarily present as being queer how do they know for i don't i feel like it's a horrible weird question to ask but how do they know you know i think that throughout my career so far i have seen a difference in terms of the social media presence so like obviously in the beginning people you know i'm talking about going to queer marches and queer parades and stuff but nobody's on my space like network executives start looking at my space. But now when they cast people, they absolutely look and see what their Twitter following is like, who's on Instagram, because they feel like they have a built-in audience. And I am very vocal about being queer um, on all my social media platforms. And so Again, I can't say for sure. Are they going to my Instagram and they're like, what is this girl talking about? Uh Oh, she's got a wife. Absolutely not. You know, I don't know if it goes that far, but I have been asked through like my representation to find out like how many followers that I have. And if you go to my sites, you see, you see exactly who I am. I'm pretty um, open about my life with my wife because I have this idea that normalizing it for people who aren't used to it is part of the way to get people who don't have a lot of like queer people or people of color in their lives to see another way of living that they might not be used to. And I'm hoping that that makes them, I don't want to say tolerate because I don't think we need to be tolerated. I think we just need to, you know, 
be accepted and be loved and appreciated like everybody else. But, you know, that's that's easy to say when it's somebody who's like in Kentucky and, you know, lives in a super small, mostly white town and doesn't know anybody that's out. And because um, my intersecting identity is like I'm really a, a big advocate for DIY and making clothes, I make all my own clothes. So I've got this really interesting connection with Mostly, it's mostly women who do things like sewing and crafting. And a lot of times they're in smaller towns and rural areas. And I really am the first person that they've ever seen who is a woman, who is a person of color, and who is queer. And so it's a weird, it's a weird intersection to have because again, in my regular life, like all I'm just surrounded by a lot of really talented queer people. And it doesn't, it's not really a conversation we have that much because we're just living our lives. But for Becky, in, again, Kentucky with four kids, who's never seen anybody like me before in real life, I really do think that it is making a difference in the way that she interacts with people that are different than her. I'm not saying that is the point of me being on Instagram and having interactions with these people. But again, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I grew up in a pretty, um, I mean, Birmingham is a pretty big city for Alabama, but it's still really segregated, still really <sighs> close-minded, I would say. And so I under I can relate to coming up in a place where you don't see a lot outside of what you experience. And so you're so unsafe for them to relate to. I, I think so. Like I get a lot of DMs from from like housewives all around the country saying, my cousin Kayla has been gay since she was in middle school and I never understood it. But now seeing you, it makes sense. And I love, you know, how much you love your wife and your sweet relationship. It's It's like... It's just normalizing it for certain people. Um, and I never thought I would be in that position. And I'm not, I'm not like, I don't don't want to have an outreach program where I'm trying to like or reach out to everybody who, you know, is unfamiliar with, with our community. But if it does happen, and if it seems like, you know, they're maintaining healthy boundaries, and they're not asking a lot of me, but they're just reaching out to say, hey, I appreciate you being here on Instagram and sharing your life. It has made me rethink some of my own ideas about what it means to be in love or be in a relationship. And that has been important. And I'm like, well, hallelujah, take it. I will accept that. That's also a side effect too, right? You're not going out to these women being like, yo, lesbians are okay. Or maybe you are. But you know, you're being like, <laughs> let me share my life to you. And I love crafting. Yes. And that and that's it. And it's like all these little pieces kind of come together and it makes connections for them. And one woman definitely wrote me and said that her girl, her daughter, had come out to her and she had a really hard time with it. And this was a black woman. And so again, she hadn't ever really seen you don't see that many black queer women in media, in television, in film. So when you don't see it, you don't see that representation. You know, representation is more than just you seeing yourself. It's for other people to see those ideas of who you can be and what it can be like to exist in the world too. And so she said it it was a huge deal for her to see me on Instagram and, and recognize that we had all these things in common and that I was living my life and I was happy because she said her biggest fear was that her daughter wasn't going to be safe and was going to be unhappy. And of course, in my head, I'm like, you're the reason for that. Like, yeah. if everybody was accepting, then you wouldn't have that much to worry about. But I didn't say that. I just said, thank you so much. I'm so glad. 
that I could be, you know, a person to make you feel connected to your daughter in a different way. That is a recurring theme that I keep hearing recently, which is about just seeing happy queer people, how important that is. And it it breaks my heart. I know. That just like showing a happy side of us is okay. Yeah. It's it's life changing. It's it's so true. And then the whole like, you know, bury your lesbians trope, which happens all the time. And that means that the bar is so low. Which is which is pretty pathetic. Our bar is really low for representation. And I think that we are finally at the phase where it is no longer enough to have representation for the sake of representation. We now are demanding more fleshed out characters. Absolutely. We want three-dimensional. We want well-rounded. We want more than a guest star. We want to fill ourselves in that. We don't just want to be seen. We want to fill a connection with what's happening with the characters. Yeah. You were a series regular in Fringe. It was Mm -hmm. five seasons. You said that after that, you didn't have any auditions. Is that because you fall in the intersection of so many different things, of being a queer and a woman and a person of color? I mean, that's what I assume. That show was actually really tough for me. Uh, I couldn't wait to get off of that show. I couldn't wait to do something else. I I wasn't treated well, but there weren't a lot of people on the show who were treated exceptionally well. But there were like – there were so many fights that I had to fight that nobody else did. And being the only woman of color on the show, it was kind of hard to not assume that that had something to do with it. And I don't think that it's even a conscious thing. When we first started, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I'm i a series regular on a TV show. This is what I have been, you know, working for the past, like, two or three years since I had been in New York was to get to that point. I finally got there. And to have your goal, like, your dream just kind of shattered, they wouldn't give me rides to work. They gave every single cast member, they picked them up from home, and they drove them to the studio in Queens, and they made me take the subway. And they would lie to me about it. They would say, oh, no, nobody's getting rides. It it was like a, a, a classic case of gaslighting. I would literally watch my castmates get off of a van. And then I would have a producer on the other side saying, they're not getting picked up. I don't know what you're talking about. It was awful. So that's how it started. And it kind of just got worse from there. And no other cast member said anything. Oh, my gosh. So actually... The only cast member that ever stood up for me was Joshua Jackson. And so I hold him very dear in my heart because of that. We would have directors who came on set who knew everyone's name but mine, and they would not learn my name. Josh at one point started walking around with a a piece of tape on his shirt that had the phonetic spelling of my name so that people would be forced to read it and say it. They would say, Josh, Anna, and you, come over here. Uh, I had one director, I asked him a question about blocking, and he said, what number are you on the call sheet? You're number seven. Does it really matter? It it was nice that the person who probably had the most power in the cast, which is Josh, because he was you know famous and well-known for his work already, I appreciated that he stood up for me. But at the same time, why is anybody having to stand up for me? Like, why aren't I just being treated? Yeah. I wasn't asking for anything more than what everybody else was getting. And it was just a constant struggle. So when that show ended, I was ready to move on to something else. But it honestly was a lot like a bad breakup, which Claire kind of helped me realize later. It felt a little bit like an abusive relationship. And I think I wasn't ready to get into another relationship because it. I was like, what if, what if this is just this industry? What if every television show is like this? Which is heartbreaking because... Where do you go from there? If this is what you've built up for years to get towards and then you get there and it's terrible, it's like you have to completely 
uh, re re reformat. Yeah, reframe your idea of what your dream is or what it is that you want to do. Did you consider doing something else with your life? <sighs> no, because I think I I'm still so drawn to to this to performing. I'm just drawn to performing, not necessarily television or film, but storytelling, I think I have a real connection to. And then I think the longer that I was on Fringe and the more that I was in the public eye, the more I saw how valuable it was to have somebody like me that was, you know, on on these television shows and movies. So I don't, don't want to say like, I'm just doing it for the fans. It's not like that at all. But I recognize that I kind of had a responsibility if I wanted it to to show that you can be a successful, happy person, even though I wasn't that happy on this show. But I was happy in my personal life, and 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 that seemed really important to me. So what I ended up doing was kind of concentrating on all the stuff outside of acting that I love to do. And that's when I got, like, super deep into to sewing. I learned how to make shoes. I learned how to make furniture. I reupholster chairs and couches. I knit a lot. I embroider. I do all these things that are artistic where I have complete creative control. And I realized how important that was for me to, if I'm going to be in this industry and um, basically kind of be a pawn for all these other people and and ultimately not have a whole lot of power. I need to be able to do something where I do have a lot of power. And so now I feel like I'm in a pretty, I found a pretty nice balance with things. I still wish that I was working more in television and film, but I get to say no to things that I am not 100% on board with, which is great because at the beginning of my career, I don't think I was in that place. I was kind of like, well, I need to work. I need to pay bills. Like, you know, it, you have to take the crappy jobs and do the stuff that you're not re that really into. And if you want to have a career and I don't feel I'm not in that place anymore, which is a real blessing. You've done some really cool roles. And I'm thinking specifically of your recent role on Underground. Yeah. It's the first time I've ever played a biracial woman. And uh, Hollywood loves to cast biracial women. And just not explain anything. And this has to, this kind of like ties into the colorism of, of Hollywood and beyond. But they like ambiguously raised people, but they don't want to explain anything about their backstory or where they come from or what it was like growing up. And so this was the first time in my entire career that I was able to play a character that was actually my ethnic makeup, which is pretty exciting because like I identify as black and I always have. But there are nuances in my experience. Like I definitely have privilege because of my skin color. I definitely have privilege because one of my parents is white. I have benefited from her, from the privileges that she has. I have been able to experience the world in different ways in some respects. That doesn't mean that, you know, I haven't experienced discrimination or anything like that. But I think it's really important to to break apart, you know, what it's like to to grow up in the South versus the North, to grow up in a different country, to to have a family that's in the military. And it's so different than me growing up in Birmingham, you know, the child of a black man and a white woman, which was just like, we could not walk down the street <laughs> without somebody saying something to us or someone looking at us funny. Like it was just a part of my day-to-day -day life. And I know that I carry that with me, that feeling of... um 
of being stared at all the time, like always for worse. When anybody's looking at me, Claire always makes fun of me. I never assume it's because they were a fringe fan or they listened to, you know, something that I've done. I always think it's because they think I look weird and I don't belong there. Really? I know. And it's like a lot to unpack and I'm in therapy. I'm working on it. Okay. <laughs> well, I was, I think about queerness, how unlike a lot of marginalized groups, we get to choose how much we want to present mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. Whereas someone can't take off their blackness to like walking at a cup of coffee. I can take off my queerness, you know? Totally. Although it seems like in your experience, you kind of have that choice in a way, depending on like where you're, you are, where like how you want to read. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's funny. I never really thought so much about because I was always like oh I have I have brown skin so people see that like you know I didn't think much of it but then people will be like oh I thought you were Italian and I'm like Italian what okay that you're and you're right It, it is totally the way that people perceive you and that's how you end up getting treated a lot of the time yeah that's another reason that that role in underground was so special to me because they really tried to have a conversation about what it was like for her to be able to kind of balance between worlds and again I feel like that comes into play with my queerness too because I don't necessarily read as like masculine of center and pretty femme and that's that's a privilege like all of these pieces are 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 a privilege that I have and so I try to make it clear early on in some scenarios, like, yes, I have a wife. We've been together for a long time. She's my boo. But there are other times, like in rooms of all men, that I try to leave my personal life out of it, mostly because I'm so afraid that going back to what you mentioned earlier, that I will be sexualized in a different kind of way. Like, oh, she's into wimp. Like, I just, (laughs) I hate, I hate the thought of, them elevating me to this like higher level because I like women than they would just seeing me as a woman. Like I feel like normally uh, a heterosexual man will see me and he may be attracted to me, he may not be. But I think that one of his first thoughts is whether or not I would be like whether or not we would get together in some kind of world this is energy that I pick up and it certainly doesn't happen with every heterosexual man that I meet, but it's almost like they sexualize sexuality and I don't sexualize sexuality. You know, like my partner is a woman and that does, that has so little to do with sex to me in some ways. Like she's just the person that, and I just connect with women on a different level, like in this emotional kind of way. And the sex almost feels like a little bit secondary to me. Like, Oh yeah. Like, and I like to have sex with her, but like, <laughs> really, she's, that's just the person that I am like mentally attracted to and emotionally attracted to. But I don't think that heterosexual men look at it like that. I feel like they only think of it as this sexualized thing. So when I say I'm queer, they're like, oh, wow, that sounds fun. Oh, they made the distinction. Yes. I think that straight men can use talking about women as an icebreaker between other guys. It's like, dude, that girl's so hot. Like, are you afraid also to be brought into that conversation and like in, in this world? Absolutely. And I have been. I have been like if people know that that I'm queer or that I have a wife or that my partner's a woman or whatever, and you can see it on their faces like, all right, well, I'm just going to start talking to you about how that woman is really hot. And I'm like, you have the wrong crowd, sir. That is not 
that's not me. I don't even objectify women like that with my friends who are who are women. Like it's just not we are way more interested in talking about like a cute outfit that a woman might be wearing as opposed to like what her body looks like or something. It's just again, it just feels like very secondary to these these other things. And I feel like when straight men are kind of brought up in this culture where the differences between them and women are their bodies and that's kind of like the the main thing that separates them it creates this lifetime of just separating women as these like physical things that are so different than them when it's like oh how do we not just talk about how alike that how alike we are what we have in common as opposed to like <laughs> these physical differences that I don't know. It seems so arbitrary in my head sometimes, but I guess it depends on the particular conversation you're having. I guess that something clicked from what you said earlier in the conversation too about casting, where maybe you're not being cast because there's no possibility of like sleeping with you. That's why I think they're afraid of that. Because yes, you're right. I think that men or straight men sexualize queer women. But they know they have a better chance of sleeping with a straight woman. chance of sleeping with the straight woman or if it's like that's the other thing like i don't identify as bi um maybe pansexual would be a good word to describe me but i'm i love the word queer i'm very happy with it that's my name that's my word but when you like men want to know specific or sorry straight men a lot of times want to know specifically like what is but what does that mean like you're married to a woman like is that that's all you want is just women or like is there space enough for a man and I'm like I don't want to have this conversation with you it's not that's not it's not for you it feels like that feels like private privileged information and so I like the word queer because it's not specific and I like that word because of the patriarchy and it was actually my friend our friend Brittany who kind of um we were having a conversation about how a lot of women don't identify – a lot of queer women don't identify as lesbian. They'll say queer or bi even if they are lesbian because it's almost like they don't want to cut off opportunities. Like not necessarily sexual opportunities, just opportunities in work. Like it makes them seem a little bit more available. And I, I understand that and I feel like I come from it from the opposite place. Like I use queer like you don't get any details. That's not that's, – those aren't details for you to have straight man. Do you find that most of your friends identify queer over lesbian? Yeah. I also have to wonder if that's because um, so many more people are coming out as non-binary. Yes. If women are more open to dating non-binary people. Absolutely. I think that – that all of it comes into play. It's all really, really tricky. And I don't think there's a right way. Like, I love that it's kind of so open and that there's this big umbrella term of queer. I also think there's immense power in having one word where you and I can also have the same word. I know. I love that so much, too. And it makes the the idea of queerness has really just felt like community to me. A little bit of a political stance, like I'm queer. I stand for queer rights. I stand for all. We're all in this together. We're all to quite to quote High School Musical. (laughs) Exactly, and it's so interesting because my um, manager, who I've been with for like for thirteen or fourteen years or something, is a gay man, and he's in his. I hope he doesn't listen to this and get mad. And I say the wrong age. I want to say he's in his fifties, but queer 
when I came out as queer to him, it was very weird because that is not a word that he grew up with any kind of positive attachment to. So through me, I feel like he's had to relearn his relationship to to the word. And I, I, I totally get it and I totally respect it. And it's a privilege to be able to come into that word without a negative history with it. And I think that because it, the negative history of it was like a, it was a secondary word, second to like faggot and yeah. dyke and all these words. Absolutely. So we could then reclaim that one. Absolutely. I, I think it'd be hard to ask other people to call us faggots, you know? <laughs> <laughs> How do you identify? <laughs> oh, I'm a faggot. <laughs> that would be so hard. That yeah. would be so hard for me. I, like, I would not know what to do because that word is like the N word to me, like... Just, right. It just doesn't come out of my mouth. And like the N-word, uh, like we have like fag is better than faggot, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's so – yeah, it's so true. It's so true. So I, so I get it and I totally respect it. And he's so sweet because he has made an effort to to accept, you know, this identity that I have even though, you know, it's tangled up with other stuff for him. But he's so sweet. Like he gets it and he he's trying to make enough room for, you know, younger generations of people who were who were coming up and, and ex- I love that. Yeah, I know. He's awesome. With things changing so much in terms of representation, do you have you seen yourself a queer biracial woman on screen anywhere? Possibly Tessa Thompson. Well, also, though, is, is she playing a queer woman on screen? Well, um, Thor, the latest Thor movie oh. where she play, plays the Valkyrie. Yeah. And they're bisexual, I think. I don't know enough about superheroes and, and comics to know. Well, I guess this proves the point, right? We're yeah. racking our brains. Abs- absolutely. I, I cannot think of anybody certainly growing up. Yeah. Never. I mean, I think that Hollywood has two races and it's like white and ethnic, right? It's so true. And then when we talk about Oscars so white, we're, we applaud ourselves when we nominate black people. But there's other races, you know? So many others. And I get, I get really frustrated when I'll see casting notices. You're right. Two races. They'll say this is white character or they'll say open ethnicities. Very rarely black or African-American. It happens. Certainly happens more often than you see like Asian-American or Native American or Indian-American or something like that. But still, it's usually open ethnicities because they feel like we can all sub in for each other. So I can't tell you how many castings I've been to where I walk in and it is like every color of the brown rainbow. So many different people that aren't white and it kind of doesn't matter who they pick because they're filling the slot of non of non-white and that's and that's why we don't have backstories of you know of, of how the character looks like this or what her family dynamic is because they don't care you're you're those characters are usually there to support the other storylines the main storylines you're you're just there kind of as a prop you might get some good scenes every once in a while i'm speaking very generally here i know that there are shows that do a good job of i think it's so easy to blame casting directors but I have quite a few friends who cast and they want diverse cast. I find oh, that it's yeah. the execs in charge who are like, yo, we're not casting that person. Oh, I 100%. And I, I say casting because that is my entry point yeah. to it. But you're absolutely right. They're trying they're trying to make the people happy that they're working for. They don't make the decisions. All they all I mean, their job is to bring as many talented people in the pool as possible, but it's the other people that narrow them down. And it's those people who are writing the characters in the first place. Like, I have had casting directors that just 
go to bat for me every single time and talk me up and really, really, you know, try to get me not only in the room, but to be seriously considered. And it sounds like sometimes it's a lot of work. <laughs> I think too, like you had this amazing role on Scandal as mm. Huck's wife. Mm -hmm. And that only happened because Shonda was a Fringe fan, right? And it was amazing because, you know, there's this It's idea. just so lucky, like, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, it's so lucky because I'm like, <laughs> how do you have time to watch television when you have 15 different projects on television already oh like God. i don't know how she finds the time i bring it up though also because huck you were his wife yes huck who guillermo plays huck is also queer and i love these two queer characters playing a straight couple well that's what so i feel like there's this idea that you know queer actors can't play straight because there's not going to be any chemistry which is just it's just a slap in the face our job is to act and i'm not saying i've seen plenty of heterosexual couples on tv that had no chemistry at all so like give me a break but so it was exciting to get an opportunity for yeah two queer actors to come together and play a very lovely might i say straight couple did y'all talk about it at all and yeah, we, we were like, isn't this funny? And he was like, yeah. And then that was pretty much it. He's just he's just such a sweetheart and he's so just lovely. And we had a lot of fun. And I remember when we were in the middle of filming this makeout scene and we cut and I was like, Kirmo, I'm so sorry. I think I gave you the tongue and I didn't mean to. Like, it totally was an accident. But Again, we had kind of created the space with each other where, you know, it felt like free and easy and we could like do whatever we needed to to make these characters feel real. And apparently that meant me giving him the tongue and he just laughed and he's like, it's okay, we're both gay. <laughs> it was one of the funniest moments that I've had on set. I really cherished my time on Skindle. We're almost out of time, but I want to talk about, you've mentioned sewing a couple times. Yes. I, I want to bring it up because I... I worked in a costume shop in college no, for four you years. Didn't. Yeah, so that was my like work study in sewing, and I found oh it to be God. one of the most zen experiences oh I've ever had. It's so therapeutic, and it's the fact so that you can't amazing. hold your phone while you're sewing. You sure can't. You can listen to podcasts. Yeah, I feel like sewing kind of saved me because, again, I learned to sew when I was in college and kind of did it off and on over the years, but I didn't get into it until Fringe was over. We moved to Los Angeles, and I wasn't working. And I was like, well, I got a lot of time. What am I going to do with it? I'm going to do all the projects that I said I wanted to. Everything I pinned for the past five years, I'm going to make those things come to life. And I got I got really into um to the, like the online sewing community and everything, but it became, it was like <sighs> such a peaceful space to work hard on something and have something to show for it at the end of the day. You can hold it in your hands and you can say, I worked on this and I did this. And, and now I'm wearing and it. And now I'm wearing it. And let me tell you what, they also changed my auditions because now I wear my clothes to every audition I go to. My wardrobe is 100% what I had made. I haven't shopped in a store in like three years. And so when I walk into an audition, I'm like, the audition could go any way it goes. Like, Maybe they like me, maybe they don't. But I'm wearing 
this dress that I made with my own two hands and nine times out of 10, I'm going to get a compliment on the dress and they're going to say, oh, that's beautiful. I love your, I love your outfit. And I'll say, I made it. And they'll say, you made it. And I feel like there's so much more to me than like my face. Like, is my face castable? Is my face marketable? I don't know. But guess what? My hands work. I knit scarves and sweaters. I can make shoes. I can make baby clothes. I make my wife jeans. I make all these things with my hands and it makes me feel like I am worth more than just what somebody else is saying my value is, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I, I think too, like to realize it and call it quote unquote women's work yes. doesn't represent how empowering it is and how you feel just capable when you're wearing this jacket that you made. Absolutely. And I think just like honoring like the universality of it. Yes. You know, all people for all time, they've had food, water, shelter, and they've clothed themselves. And they've clothed themselves. Yes, it's so true. And this this idea, um, like I think that crafting is one of the most incredible art forms that we have. And it is a way that women have been able to provide for their families, put food on the table. And we don't put a lot of value on that. Like we see a painting in a museum and we say, well, this is worth this many thousands of dollars because this person went to school and learned how to do this technique of painting and this is worth something. And then you have some woman in some like community who's weaving baskets and who's selling them to tourists so that she can provide for her family and she's doing it with her hands and they're incredible and you would never be able to do that in the same amount of time that she does it. And we say, oh, that's that's the that's her trade that's her trade like that's the work that she does she has a she has a family to take care it's of functional, it's functional it's not art exactly and it's like guess what women have found a way to make beautiful things that are also functional and do it seamlessly and they've been doing it for centuries and i think that it's just this uh, i think it's a symptom of the patriarchy that we don't put as much value into using our hands and creating things that are gorgeous and also useful you and I both learned to sew in college. Oh my gosh, I Are love th- this so much. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> Is this a skill though that's not being taught and passed down? <sighs> my mom loved to sew. But she was never able to teach me because she was working at a restaurant like for two shifts a day because she's trying to take care of all her kids because my parents were separated and I was with my dad on the weekends and they're both like struggling to make ends meet. So there's so much stuff that I feel like doesn't get passed down a lot of times because of the way that our culture has kind of become this like survival mechanism like there's not enough space like not there aren't a lot of women who are housewives and who have enough time to be able to share these these crafting things and this knowledge with other people in the future even if they want to so i'm always trying to imagine like what would my mom look like what would she create if she hadn't been busting her butt my entire life to keep food on our table and to pay our rent same for my dad like he was really into um machines and auto mechanics he never went to school what if he had had the the money to be able to like go to school and really learn about it and not work at the post office post office is great appreciate this government job that's how i had insurance as a kid finally but still it doesn't leave you a lot of room to really 
experiment with the creative side that you have. So here I am, like the daughter of my parents years later. I am like their wildest dreams come true. I'm not crazy famous. I don't have a ton of money, but my day-to-day life is pretty much filled with all stuff that I want to be able to do. Me making things with my hands, me enjoying my relationship with my partner that I'm still with. You know, we haven't separated. There's so many things that I've been able to do in my life, even at this age that they never got to do. So I know that they get a chance to live through me in some ways, but it's still, I just wonder if there's some alternate universe out there where like, I don't know, we're all living on a commune. There's like a huge farm. We're making all our own clothes together. My dad is building machines. (laughs) There's got to be some, some version of this reality where where everybody gets to be happy and everybody heard yes the whole way through. All right, big thanks to Jessica for that. If you enjoyed the interview, please tweet about us, do an Insta story, tell all of your friends. It is so appreciated. Thank you. You can also stay up to date by signing up for our newsletter. That's at lgbtqpodcast.com. That way you can find out all about our new episodes, all about our live shows. We're doing one at DragCon this year in LA, so stay tuned for that. That website, again, is lgbtqpodcast.com. Also, I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. I'm super fun. I promise. Come find me. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye.